0: Good afternoon everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by johnpiali.com as well at St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Lots of stuff we're going to get into today in the world of baseball. often is the diversity amongst players in sports. And I've spent a lot of time and maybe, maybe my historian aspect when it comes to baseball, I probably spend more time talking about team managers than I do and other things that happen in history. If you find a lot of my comparative analysis and different things that I, I've brought up, comparing different generations and different managers, a lot of times I do focus on that. So that's something that we'll touch on in a little bit. But obviously, anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, please call the number 732-364-3598. Also, you want to interact with the show you can send a comment through periscope or facebook live so you know we'll, we'll get that going in a little bit like i said phone lines are open so there's something you could you could pop on anything that you want to discuss today so i was thinking a little bit about the start of a season we see it happen all the time and obviously talking about time sensitive material when it comes to you know the world of uh, of This show. So we don't want to overdo it. And once again, we got a little bit of an issue where my head is kind of missing when it comes to uh, the broadcast. So if you just hold on one second, I'm going to jump around and we'll try to to fix this. We'll try to adjust maybe a little bit up. I don't know if that helps. It doesn't help. You know, whatever. Like I said, we could forfeit the whole broadcast too, which I'm okay with that. But so... Those starts that we see every season in baseball, and it's something that's very easy to overreact to, and trust me, it happens all the time. you got the Orioles taking two of three in a series against the New York Yankees, and all of a sudden, people are like, wow, this isn't going to be the Yankees' year. I had the Yankees going to the World Series, and all of a sudden, it's not going to happen. The Baltimore Orioles supposed to be one of the worst teams in baseball history, or really in the last 20, 25 years. And that's not going to happen because what they're four and one right now. Like I said, I don't want to throw this in there from a time-sensitive standpoint. And what what I'll do one more time is we'll try to fix this damn camera. And if I don't, honestly, if I don't get this stuff straightened out, you know, this might be my breaking point where I friggin' you know lose it over something stupid like this because you know we sit here all day and we get the right setting of the camera and then all of a sudden once the broadcast starts it gets screwed up so this is all stuff that you don't see or hear if you're listening or watching other shows and I, I, I think you should appreciate that because most of all, all the other stuff that you hear and see is just kind of repetitive and it's the same and it's the most repetitive crap that you're ever going to hear so instead which we're going to talk about in a little bit the hatred that exists for leadership in sports and how they become the scapegoat. I do want to talk about these overreactions that we always see when it comes to fans. People in the media kind of feed into it and make it a little bit bigger and a little bit more than it really is. And we look at a team that could be 5-1 and one or 7-1 and one to start the season. Maybe the expectations weren't there and then all of a sudden the discussion is Do you believe in them? Do you think it's overrated? Do you think it's overrated? The Yankees sitting there with more losses than wins at at a week into the season. Is that something to say that that's a reflection of the team that you're going to see? Well, you you have injuries, which obviously have happened to the Yankees, and we see a lot through a series of injuries is the depth that any given sports team has. And the reason that I want to talk about the overreaction when it comes to the start of the season is I do think there is a major correlation between Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA, and a series of other sports that we tend to look at in the same light. In other words, that baseball fan is just coming off of a football season. We understand that the regular season in the National Football League comes to just 16 regular season games. So obviously the power that exists in each one of those games is much stronger to that than a Major League Baseball game or a Major League Baseball series of games. You'd really have to go through about four or five, to, you know, you even become close to maybe a half of an NFL game. In fact, the equivalent of one NFL game or the, what it is, means it an impact to the rest of the season, you'd probably have to go a little more than 10 Major League Baseball Patriots, whatever team that you're rooting for or discussing at the moment, they lose their first regular season game, you start to talk about the importance of winning the second game, and then you lose the second game, and all of a sudden it's a question in regards to how you're going to be able to make it through an entire season. You know, is the season over after two games? Well, we understand, and anybody with a decent head on their shoulders Understands the fact that a baseball team can lose its first two games in the, of the season, still win its division, still make a run when it comes to getting to the postseason and possibly win a World Series. You know, zero and three, zero and five teams in a National Football League tend to have a little more struggle than that team that may lose their first or four or five, four or five games in a regular season in Major League Baseball. And we understand. Baseball is a regular season of 162, and football is a regular season of 16 games and 17 weeks. We understand, you know, being one and four in the National Football League is not the same as being one and four in Major League Baseball. And you know, some of the naysayers or the haters may come at me right now and say, "Why are you talking in such layman's terms? Why are you speaking in almost?" a stupefied way and a way that could be perceived as condescending towards your audience by making it so simple. It's because people are yelling and screaming over the fact that a couple teams that had high expectations in Major League Baseball have not done what they are expected to do within their first couple games of the season. And it's an overreaction. It's something that we understand comes from a fan because fan is short for the word fanatic. We expect people to be over the top. We expect the uh, overreaction when it comes to every given game to be at an all-time high. But sometimes, simplifying things and maybe stating stuff that is such common knowledge that is so obvious and understood that somebody on the other side could be hearing may be positive To just make you temporarily understand that baseball is a very long season. And those that are talking about the Baltimore Orioles saying they may be a lot better than they were expected to be. Or the Yankees may be on their way to a 70-win season. Need to understand that over time in baseball, more times than not, the cream rises to the top. And in fact, if you are a team that doesn't have high expectations coming into a given season... It's an understanding that they're going to have to do it over a longer period of time to be able to prove themselves, to be able to be considered amongst the elite of Major League Baseball. We talk about the Washington Nationals last year, who were expected to win the National League East once again. They had won it the previous two years and four of the last six seasons. And the Atlanta Braves were a team that was in transition, was expected to maybe get a little bit better, possibly at their best maybe make a run for the wild card to finish maybe over 500 for the season, and they got off to a good start. Now they needed to back it up with a good May after a good April, have a good June after a good May, a good July after a good June. And the more they were able to prove it month after month after month after month, they put themselves in a position where they certainly were worthy of winning themselves in National League East. And I would say the same as it applies to any of the mid-range teams, and especially any of the teams that were considered to be in the bottom 10 in Major League Baseball this season. It's good if they get off to a nice start. It's good if they're on the top of their division once the month of April ends or maybe the month of May ends. But in order for them to be taken seriously, they need to do it month after month. They need to do it May after April, June after May, July after June, and as you get past the All-Star break and close to the trading deadline in Major League Baseball, all of a sudden that team is going to start to be taken a little more seriously. But not right now. Not right now after three games. Not right now after five games. And like I said, it works both ways. Those fans in New York City that are screaming bloody murder over the Yankees losing a couple games need to relax. I understand You know, not having Giancarlo and not having Miguel Andujar are going to impact them in possibly a negative way. You need players to step up, and that's what baseball is about. It's about the depth that you created, not just your best starting nine or your first couple starters or relievers, but the players that are expected if there comes an injury to step in and compete at a high level. And I think the Yankees, for a little while, are going to get the benefit of the doubt, and they should. They should very well get the benefit of the doubt. They could have a couple bad series. They could lose a couple games that perhaps you're you know expecting them to win. You know, once again, this is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. And I do apologize as we're going to pod this phone call up. And it may take a couple seconds. And we are going to take a call right here. And I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. This is Kevin from Millstone. Millstone? Yes, Millstone. I want to ask a question about why Ron Darling would put the information that he put in in his book, especially the stuff that he said about Lenny Dykstra. Well, that's a good call, Kevin, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Obviously, one of the stories that is existing in this area. And once again, Kevin from Millstone, thank you for the call. Um, Obviously, Ron Darling, in a book that he put out, which I thought was very aptly named, 108 Stitches. And 108 Stitches, obviously we know, or if you don't know, that's the amount of stitches that are on a baseball. As the baseball is spun around and woven together. It wasn't the first time that that baseball term was put out there. Billy Sample, who's been a guest on his show... Uh, created a baseball movie or a movie about the clubhouse in a professional baseball setting. And he called it Reunion 108. And I picked up on that right away. 108, I think it a number 108. And I know that's the amount of stitches that are on a baseball. But, yeah you know, Ron Darling, who is obviously extremely intelligent, uh, Ivy League school, went to Yale, is a broadcaster now for the Mets after a long playing career as a major league pitcher, and he's written his second book. His first was some of the things that happened on the 1986 team, and obviously he gets in a little more in depth. He speaks about things about his playing career with the Oakland Athletics, which was the last part of his career, as well as some other different things that happened while he played. Now, I did see in a little excerpt from his first book that this wasn't the first time he had mentioned Lenny Dykstra hurling insults from the on-deck circle before Game 3 of the World Series. So this wasn't the first time that Ron Darling had divulged into this topic, which I think is important, because we look at people, whether you're an athlete, whether you're associated with sports, whether you're somebody like me that just wants to write a book, there are important things that become big headlines, and if it was revealing that Lenny Dykstra was hurling insults from the Mets dugout or the deck circle before games. uh, Games uh, was game three of the World Series in Boston. Then it would be revealing that it was the first time it was mentioned. Now it wasn't. It was mentioned in his first book. He gets in a little more detail with this, and maybe with some help from his publisher or enticement to say, hey, it'll be a little more juicy if you put a little more detail in exactly the stuff that Lenny Dykstra was yelling at Oil Cam Boyd, who was getting ready to pitch for the Red Sox in Game 3 at Fenway Park. Obviously, if that stuff happened, which, you know, you look at the two guys, Ron Darling, who's kind of looked at as a gentleman type, very Um, well-spoken. I have heard some stories in regards to people speaking to Ron Darling when he wasn't not necess- was not necessarily very nice. In regards to the way he handled himself or handled people in the media or people that were speaking to him as fans or in neutral settings. So I'm not going to make Ron Darling out to be the perfect gentleman, and a lot of people have done that. A lot of people have made it about you know Ron Darling, you know no pun on his name. But that's essentially what he is known as. A very well spoken person, a very nice uh, baseball announcer, you know, was not tied to any controversy for the most part. Really, for the exception of playing for the 86 Mets, really wasn't caught up in any sort of controversy throughout his Major League career and his post playing career. Lenny Dykstra, we know the ties to steroids that exist. We know the different things that he's spoken about with Howard Stern about. So the the image of Lenny Dykstra was kind of one of the bad boys on that team. So if it's a matter of just taking sides one over the other, conventional wisdom would probably push you towards Ron Darling. Now my question would be, and I, I know this has been asked before, what does Ron Darling gain? for putting this information in this book. Now, obviously, to sell copies of a book, you need something that stands out that's like, wow, he's revealing this. I can't believe that he said what he said. And obviously, he alienated Lenny Dykstra when he said this, and may have very well alienated some of the other players on that 86 team or some of his former teammates. Some of his teammates at that time may think, whether Lenny said this or didn't say this, that it probably wasn't the proper forum to reveal information and stuff that really is confined to the team. Now, Ron Darling's defense may be to say, hey, he's yelling these insults in full view of anybody. So it wasn't something that happened in a clubhouse. And I understand there are some times where that privacy that exists or that assumption that because you're a team, because you are together, amongst the group, sometimes when that is broken, it causes some bad feelings, and I do think one of the things that you could say about Ron Darling it is this. He mentioned it in his other book. Did he have to go into further detail and make Lenny Dykstra out to be a racist or a person that hurls racial insults at a person that is uncalled for? Should that be an indication of the type of person that Lenny Dykstra is? Was that the right forum for him to do that? Lenny Dykstra obviously has had to deal with a lot of different issues and a lot of problems that have existed in his post baseball career. Does he really need this? And is this a violation of that trust that's built amongst teammates? And could that alienate not Lenny Dykstra? Of course it can, but can that alienate Ron Darling from some of his ex-teammates or former teammates that he played with with the New York Mets? Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden, Kevin Mitchell, all African-American players that played on the 86 Mets have all diffused it or said that, listen, it's not something that Lenny Dykstra said. They didn't go as far as saying that Lenny Dykstra would never say anything like that, but they did go far enough to say that I don't remember that happening. Oil Camp Boyd on the mound for the Boston Red Sox in that game says, hey, he could have. It wouldn't surprise me if he said things like that, but I didn't hear him. So once again, it becomes Ron Darling's word against Lenny Dykstra's word, and if Ron Darling put this out there saying, hey, if there's one player in that team I'm going to pick on, let it be Lenny Dykstra as we hit the halfway point here in the past fall show. And I do think we're going to get through a full hour today. Anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball sports and Unify in America. Obviously a long-winded answer to a very simple question. When it comes down to it, Ron Darling knows that he is going to come out looking very positive. Lenny Dykstra, a guy who has a checkered past, cannot possibly come out of this looking any good. So the question, and I think the major question that exists in this issue, is was it necessary for Ron to make this part of his book? And and, and, uh, honestly, you could talk about 99% of the book talking about something else. So this may be one little excerpt or one tiny paragraph that exists in the entire book that he wrote. But was it necessary? And when you talk about Lenny Dykstra, who may further alienate some fans, some reporters, some perhaps current and former teammates, or teammates that he had over the course of his playing career and people that knew him from playing Major League Baseball, this may have a negative influence on how people think of and remember Ron Darling. Did he have to do this? He's a successful broadcaster. He was a successful Major League Baseball pitcher. You know, did he violate something in regards to the player-player agreement or in you know, unspoken terms? And any of the former Major League Baseball players that listen to the show, I'd really like to get your take on that. You know, somebody that reveals information in a book about a teammate, is that a violation of the player code? And I think Ron Darling could make as many more enemies as Lenny Dykstra could in his given situation. So reminder that this copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web, and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of the show without the express written consent of the passball show, johnpiele.com and John LLC, is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of programs, such as by charging admission for a showing, is similarly prohibited. And that one goes out to, of course, Ralph Kiner, who did games for WOR and the Mets for years, from the team's inception in 1962 over until the year before his death, would always go through a disclaimer that was similar to that, and obviously I modified it <coughs> excuse me, to fit my show. And obviously, Ralph, one of the great, not just broadcasters, but one of the great power hitters that Major League Baseball had ever seen. So we're going to move on. And Kevin, once again, Kevin from Millstone, appreciate you calling in. Anybody else that wants to give the show a call, number 732-364-3598, you could also comment on a Facebook Live or Periscope feed. If you're listening on YouTube, there's a comment section there as well. We are going to catch up on the podcast Uh, The Passball Show podcast, which you can find on iTunes and Google Play. The last three episodes, including this one, will be up sometime today. So, we spoke about to start the show, overreaction in baseball. And once again, going very simply to talk about 162 games in a baseball season, 16 games in an NFL season. And you got to talk about at least about 10 or 11 games to go by before you judge the equivalent of one National Football League game. So 22 games, or 33 games, or 44 games, as we get ourselves close to Memorial Day in May in Major League Baseball really is the first time that you look back and you say, hey, is a team underachieving to a point where we should be worried? Is a team in baseball perhaps overachieving to a point where we may want to start to give them a little bit of credit and a little bit of consideration to do a little more than they've done? We talk about the trade deadline being moved back. We talk about teams having to identify, probably at an earlier point in the season, whether they are a contender or they're willing to give up on the season. And obviously for teams that have a lot of stock put into their season, where the expectations were high, you'd hate, as a fan, to see the team quit Earlier in the season than we've seen before. But with the trading deadline moving back in Major League Baseball, it's something we may very well see. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about, and this happens seemingly seemingly more in the New York area, the New York metropolitan area than you see in other regions across the country. And that is a hatred and a almost a scapegoating of its team's respectful managers respective managers, and we look at whether it's an Aaron Boone with the Yankees or a Mickey Calloway with the Mets, and really you could go back to Joe Girardi and Joe and before that Buck Showalter and Stump Merrill and all the managers that the Yankees had in the 1980s. And with the New York Mets, you could trace it back to the original manager that they had in 1962 in Casey Stengel. But if you go back beyond, beyond Mickey Calloway... Terry Collins was hated by the fans and the media. You go back beyond him to Jerry Manuel and Willie Randolph and Art Howe. And I'll tell you this. A lot of people don't believe this because it's the time past. Bobby Valentine getting the Mets to the World Series and everything he did to help you know, the country and the New York City area in 9-11. He's looked at as a hero. There was a couple of years that he was hated by Mets fans. He was chased with vitriol when it comes to the New York City media, who wanted him fired if the Mets didn't make the playoffs in 1999, which you remember they had to win the last game of the season. They had to win game 163 against the Reds in which Al Leiter threw a shutout. And if it wasn't for that, then fans wanted Bobby Valentine out. They wanted him him fired in 1999, but we look all these years later, almost 20 years later, and Bobby Valentine is looked at as the model manager, the one that every manager that exists for the New York Mets is compared to. I'll just assume that we all see these same changes that are happening right before our eyes. Now, obviously, if you go back and you've been a sports fan or a baseball fan for 20, 30 years, especially in the New York City area, you have understood that the if something doesn't go right, who do you blame? When it comes to Major League Baseball, it's not the players, it's not the owner, it's not the general manager, it's not fellow fans, and sure as hell, ain't yourself, it's the manager. And I don't understand this as we've seen the game change right before our eyes. We've seen the power that a Major League Baseball manager has had over the years go away and get replaced with an analytics staff, with a front office that essentially is the eye in the sky telling the manager what to say and what to do. Certain pitchers that aren't available to pitch on a given night is continuously blamed on the manager. Now you could blame the manager for a use of pitchers in a game. You could use the Seth Lugo example. He was under the weather. Why pitch him out there for a second inning and in almost forty pitches? That's a valid argument. But when it comes to pitchers not being available, I'm gonna question whether you as the fan in New York City know, who is making that call, whether that pitcher is available or not available. It could be an injury, but could also be a decision by the analytic staff of the Major League Baseball team that said pitcher was not supposed to pitch or not going to pitch that day. So the decisions that are made outside of the hands of the manager could be a benefit. If you're a bad manager in Major League Baseball, you may be saved from making some bad decisions by the analytics staff, but if the analytics staff makes a bad decision, once again, the fans that, for whatever reason, even though the information is getting thrown in their face and told to them over and over again, the managers aren't making the decisions for a Major League Baseball team. They haven't constructed the roster. They haven't made the determination of who is going to be on the roster and not be on the roster. Who's going to play in a game and not play in a game. Who's going to be available to pitch in a bullpen. Who's not going to be available to pitch in a bullpen. You've heard it when it comes to the Yankees and the Mets. Decisions that were made a week ahead of time. That so-and-so is going to get a day off today. Do you think the manager is making that decision no, it's the general manager and the analytics staff that's making that decision right over their head, telling that manager what it is that you're going to do, who it is that you're going to play. Pete Alonso's getting the day off. You know why? Not because Mickey Callaway wants to give him the day off, because it's a predetermined decision that was made a week ago and was made over Mickey Callaway's head. And if there's a similar lineup move, or a decision that a relief pitcher is not going to pitch in a given game. It's not made by the manager. So let's stop being fans like this was 20 years ago. Stop being, as we're covering things in the media, like we're looking at the game like it was 20 years ago. A Major League Baseball manager right now has absolutely no power, and so limited power, maybe to the point of being able to pull a player in a game. They may not even have that authority to do that anymore. Do you understand? Because apparently, from what I hear, especially when it comes to the Twitter world, especially when it comes to the talking heads, a lot of people don't seem to understand that. A manager like a Billy Martin or a Sparky Anderson or an Earl Weaver would never make it in a game today. That's why Bruce Bochy's retired at the end of the year. That's why Buck was out in Baltimore last year because that manager that actually wanted to impact the game in that way cannot get a job today. You and I could make just as good of a major league manager if we knew enough about baseball than most of the people out there because they're not given the power to do the job that they could do even 10 years ago. So when we sit here and we say fire a manager because so-and-so wasn't available in the bullpen, or he gave a day off to a star player after they got two hits the day before, you need to understand that was a predetermined decision that was not even made by said manager. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste a smoothness and drinkability you'll find a no beer at any cost so if you if you follow my website at all a couple months back or maybe around the turn of the year I put together an article kind of talking about the history of black and african-american managers in Major League Baseball and obviously you go back to Frank Robinson who had that opportunity in what 1975 or 1976 where he became the Indians manager first black manager in Major League Baseball history Almost 30 years after Jackie Robinson became the first African American Major League player, of course, since the days of Moses Fleetwood Walker and William Edward White in the 19th century. And the point that I keep making, and I think it's worth bringing it up more than once on this show, is that there are 30 teams in Major League Baseball, sure, two, four, six, maybe eight, 10, 12, I don't know, 14 teams going back to the post-expansion era, have been added. So in other words, we're talking about teams that have existed going back to the 19th century. The American League, of course, as we know, started in 1901. But some of the teams that have never had a black manager are a surprise. And you look at one of the things that I always like to go back to, errors, admissions, Maybe things that I could have clarified a little bit better. When I put this list together, I made the mistake of lumping African Americans who were major league managers and Latin and Hispanic major league managers. And the reason that they should be separate is I think from the history and the heritage that they are just as prominent and important in the game and it should be separated. So what I will do is I'll do some research and I'll come up with every team in Major League Baseball's first Latin or Hispanic manager and have that separate from the African-American managers. Now, there still are 11 teams in Major League Baseball that have never had a black manager. And we look at it because we can remember Jackie Robinson becoming the first African-American player since the days of, of course, Moses Fleetwood Walker and William Edward White. And was it 12 years 1958, 1959, when Pump C. Green became the first black player for the Boston Red Sox. So every team had had one within 12 years. And then obviously in the days of expansion, there were black players that were integrated with the teams that started that season. So we didn't have that issue in baseball. We didn't have that long-running team that, for whatever reason, never had an African-American player after Jackie Robinson broke that Uh, self-white imposed ban on black players in Major League Baseball. But when it comes to managers, I think this is something that we have not spent enough time talking about. And once again, when it comes to history, I say it, I probably spend about 35% of my research talking about managers or researching managers in Major League Baseball history. So I'll come up with things that maybe, over the grand scheme of talk, doesn't get brought up that much. But, There's still 11 major league teams that have never had a black manager. And teams like the Philadelphia Phillies and the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox have allowed some time to go by when at some point they could have hired a qualified African-American manager. And it's unfortunate because you look at Frank Robinson, who obviously recently passed away and will miss his contributions to the game, was the first African-American manager, not just in Major League Baseball history, but in both the American and National Leagues. Because when he took over the San Francisco Giants in 1981, he became the first African-American manager in the National League. He also became the first African-American manager for the Baltimore Orioles in 1988. He then became the first African-American manager for the Montreal Expos and Washington Nationals in 2002, and of course when they became the Nationals in Washington, D.C. in 2004. And I'm just wondering, is this a topic that isn't brought up for any reason? Why are there 11 teams in Major League Baseball that have never had a black manager? And why isn't there any pressure on any one of those Major League Baseball organizations to integrate when it comes to the leadership role, especially in a position, let's be serious, because I just talked about this. It's been watered down. That power that exists there is probably more suitable for the front office. So how many teams in Major League Baseball have never had a black general manager? How many teams in Major League Baseball have never had a Latin general manager? And why is that not as important as a player playing on the field? Where are the African-American owners in Major League Baseball? And for that matter, for the rest of the sports, some of the most lucrative and most gifted in regards to financially driven players, the ones that make the most money, don't seem to want to get in ownership. Magic Johnson did. Where are those other star players, the ones that make the most money, why aren't they getting in ownership? let alone being a coach or a general manager of a given sports team. A little bit... (coughs) Excuse me. As we're still getting through this cold, and hopefully the next time we're on the air, it'll be completely out of me. A little recap of the show today. We started out talking about um, the overreaction that exists in baseball when it comes to teams starting their season. And we see a little bit too much when a team gets off to a bad start. A team struggles to start a season that has high expectations. We say, hey, the season's over. Get rid of this player, get rid of that player, fire the manager, fire the general manager, yada, yada, yada. And we understand it's a little bit of an overreaction, but the best way to simplify it is to talk about and make a correlation and comparison of Major League Baseball to that of the season length of the National Football League. 16 games in pro football. If you lose the first two or first three or first four, You're certainly in a lot more trouble than you are if you lose your first two, three, or four in Major League Baseball. If you lose to a bad team in baseball, it's probably more likely to happen. The New York Yankees were probably not expected to go 19-0 against the Baltimore Orioles, even though the Yankees, for a lot of, of experts, were expected to go to the World Series. I have them going to the World Series. And the Orioles were probably looked at to be a little bit worse of a team than they were last year, When they lost 115 games. And going back to 1899 in Major League Baseball, the only teams that have lost more games than the Baltimore Orioles did last year were the 1916 Philadelphia Athletics, who lost 116. The 2003 Detroit Tigers, who lost 119. The New York Mets of 1962, who lost 120. And of course, the 1899 Cleveland Spiders, that went 20 and 133. So the Orioles are looking that bad in construction of their roster based off expectations, but nobody figured that the Yankees were going to go 19-0 against them. So why is there an overreaction when the Orioles take two out of three from the Yankees in Yankee Stadium early on in the season? So we went from overreactions to talking about Ron Darling's comments in his book, and once again, thanks to uh, Kevin from Millstone for chiming in and you know talking about it, because you know, I I think there's a possibility that Ron Darling could end up alienating more people than even Lenny Dykstra will based off of those comments. Now, I think there's a handful of people out there that believe that there's nothing that Lenny Dykstra could say or do that would surprise him. Lenny Dykstra has battled image issues in regards to some of the things he was involved in and happened during and after his playing career, so... I don't think there's going to be more people that are going to be down on Lenny Dykstra if this story was even true, which he denies. Other players on the Mets said he didn't hear it. Oil Cam Boyd himself said that he, he didn't hear it. But I do think when it comes to the when it comes to those that played, and once again, this is a shout out to all those that listen to the show that played Major League Baseball. Is there a kind of a, a code of conduct that exists? in regards to things that happen in a clubhouse. And when you're talking about something that's said in the clubhouse, and you reveal it in a book later, and I understand that Ron Darling didn't necessarily do this. This wasn't something that, in his eyes, happened behind the scenes. This happened when Lenny Dykstra was in the on-deck circle in game three of the World Series, about to kick off, oil camboy boy down the mound. He was yelling every explicative and racist and insensitive comment he could make towards the pitcher right there in front of full view of anybody. So in other words, if this was 2019, you'd pull out your iPhone camera, you would have gotten exactly what Lenny Dykstra said, and more would have been made about it than could have been made 33 years ago. But my question is, did Ron Darling violate some trust by expounding on what he saw there and almost reporting it like a reporter as opposed to somebody who was a teammate, was in that locker room, was in that clubhouse, and may have had some responsibility towards his other teammates. In other words, what happens in the clubhouse or the locker room stays in a clubhouse or locker room. Interesting to think about. Overreaction to starts. We talked about uh, the hatred that exists in New York City when it comes to their favorite teams, coaches, and managers. We have to understand, and I'll keep reiterating this point, and once again, one of the points that keep getting mentioned on this show is something that I stand for and understand because I see it and I understand how the game has changed in baseball right now. And the fact that managers of a Major League Baseball team have as little power as they've ever had. When it comes to giving a player a day off, it's not the manager's decision. It's the front office and the analytics staff telling you that Aaron Judge isn't going to play today or Pete Alonso isn't going to play today. First of all, that decision was made a week ago. And second of all, that manager that you're blasting, that you're saying that he doesn't know what he's doing and should be fired, had nothing to do with that decision. He's just doing what he's told. And finally, more talk needs to be out there about the lack of African-American managers in Major League Baseball and the fact that there are 11 teams in baseball that have never had a black manager. And if you go to my site, I got it up there on johnpla.com kind of just a reminder to to everybody. The right hand side you got my picks 30 to 1 MLB countdown previews but then you have a list of the first major league manager that was African American for each team. You got the Braves who go back to 1876, never had a black manager. The Cardinals who started in 1882, never had a black manager. The Philadelphia Phillies, 1883 have never had a black manager. The Red Sox, Yankees, Tigers, Philadelphia, Kansas City, Oakland Athletics, Washington Senators, Minnesota Twins, all started or were original teams in the American League in 1901, have never had a black manager. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, the Florida Miami Marlins, the Arizona Diamondbacks, all teams that should have them. And like I said, if you go on my site, you'll see coming soon, a list of each Major League Baseball team's First Latin or Hispanic manager. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in to the show today. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPale.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Just a reminder that Castro provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. We'll be back with you probably either later on in a week or next week. We'll see what happens in the world of sports. See if there's anything that maybe comes up to become a uh, Important point to bring up on this show. We'll be back with you then. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.